It's kind of remarkable because this is the very first time we discover that Paul was a Roman citizen. This never comes up in the text. And yet it's not the only time it comes up. We'll find later on in chapter 22, again in chapter 23 and 25, that the fact that he's a Roman citizen and that Paul very aggressively asserts his rights of citizenship each time for the same reason, he was facing certain very serious legal problems and he stood on his rights according to Roman law, and especially in regards to these magistrates, because apparently what they had done was highly illegal, and I'll explain that in detail. And when Paul mentions to the policemen that come to escort him out that he is a Roman citizen and he's been beaten illegally, there is a panic that overtakes these two men who are the appointed civil guardians of the city of Philippi. Philippi was a unique in the Roman world. It's a Greek city, and yet, it, in fact, it was the city of Alexander the Great, and his fight came from there when he conquered the most of the known world at that time. But it was also defeated by the Romans, completely destroyed, and rebuilt by the Romans, and became what was called a colonia. Basically, it was a part of Rome that wasn't in Rome, so that it was considered to be as much a part of Rome as the city of Rome itself, that all the people that lived there were citizens of Rome, and these men were appointed to legislate and to execute basically all of the laws and rules and regulations. They were the primary executive, judicial, and legal authorities within that city who were directly appointed by Rome and were answerable to Rome for all of their actions. And so we begin to, as we understand that, we begin to understand their concerns. And yet one of the questions before we get there is that why is it that we have never heard that Paul to this before this point was a Roman citizen? And the answer really, I think, is some of the wisdom that Paul used and kind of his analysis, his cost-benefit analysis of all the different situations that he was in. For example, he says to the Corinthians, he says, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient or profitable. In other words, he says, I can do a lot of things that I have a right to do, but I choose not to do some things. I choose not to exercise some rights because it's not the thing that would do what? Would lead to the furtherance of the gospel. In fact, he even goes on in, in chapter 9 and 10 to talk about how he has a right to be supported by the churches. And yet at the same time, he says, we have not used this power lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ, lest people would accuse him of doing what he did for financial gain and profit. But instead, he went on to say, I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. So here we see something about Paul that I think is worthy of imitation. He wasn't double-minded. He wasn't divided in, in terms of how he wanted to live his life. He wasn't saying, how can I serve God and yet at the same time embrace my best life now? Rather, he said, I am willing to sacrifice anything and everything if I can simply fulfill the task, the ministry that God has placed upon me to reach men with the gospel of Christ that some might be saved. And every other decision that Paul made came under that covering under that rubric. That was a basis of evaluating. It was his personal grid for managing life. And I would just suggest to you as a brief aside, sometimes my brief sides become the whole sermon, so, but I would just suggest to you as a brief aside that you pray about adapting that same view of life because it'll serve you really well as the days and years go by. When you begin to look at every circumstance and just ask, God, is this the profitable path for me as a follower of Jesus to go down? Is this the choice that you would choose? And I'm not saying that you'll always completely understand the impacts or the effect of those choices, but I guarantee you this, when you make those kind of decisions in faith, trusting God to lead you, that he in fact will and the outcome will always be the best. I go back to when my wife and I were first engaged and we were talking about, is this God's will for us to be married? I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I wanted to marry her. One, she was really attractive. Uh, two, she made me laugh. Three, uh, I was afraid that if I didn't grab her up, somebody else would because there were guys waiting in line and I didn't want her to wake up from the delusion I'd cast on her. 
But I remember praying that we just separated and fasted and prayed and said, God, if this is not of you, then your will be done and we'll move on. And I mean, I rejoiced when I felt very confidently, this is what God wants. But some people look at me and say, how do you stay married for 51 years? And the answer is really simple. If you know it's what God wants, you stay with it regardless. It's not something fragile. You stay with what you know God has called you to. And that's such a powerful way so that there's many things and choices and decisions that you and I encounter in our day-to-day life that if we look at them through the lens of Scripture and from our experience of walking God and through the counsel of the Holy Spirit, we just look at it and say, that's not a good decision or at least one I'm willing to make because I want my life to conform as best I can to the will of God and not just trying to get my best life right now. Well, essentially, that's what Paul was telling us about his life. And yet, many of us have wondered, why was Paul being so peevish and petty when he is being released? Why doesn't he just pick up his, his balls and go home? Why didn't he leave the game? Why didn't he say, I'm getting out of here, these people don't love me, do kind of a Richard Nixon, you know, they're not going to have me to kick around anymore. Why did he not take that option? Why did he dig in his heels and say, I'm not leaving until they come and apologize and take me out themselves? Because his point was very simple. They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prisons. If he had been in some other Greek city like Ephesus or maybe even Corinth to some degree, they may not have, those words may not have had the impact that they did in this city, which considered itself thoroughly Roman to the core. You see, Roman law stipulated that an official violated the rights of a citizen, whatever they did would, to that citizen would in turn be done to them. So when they discover that Paul and Silas are citizens of Rome, they recognized They faced the danger of being publicly disrobed, publicly beaten, thrown into prison, and then afterwards kicked out of town. So we begin to understand where the translation in the NIV says they were alarmed. I think a a more accurate word was they were scared spitless. They were terrified that their entire lives were going to be destroyed because they had made one impetuous decision. Instead of asking the key question, they just assumed that Paul and Silas were just common Jews or Greeks whom they could treat any way they wanted to. Now, to understand all this, you have to kind of get a grasp of the importance of a Roman citizenship in this time. I mean, um, less than 10% of the people, there are 55 to 60 million people at this time in the Roman Empire at large, and less than 10% of them, maybe five, six or less million people had Roman citizenship. And most of them were either in Rome or in cities like Philippi. If you were from Jerusalem, you you were not automatically a Roman citizen. You were a citizen of Judea, and you were obligated to keep all the laws of Judea. The same thing was in every other province of Rome. Even kings like Herod Agrippa and so forth didn't necessarily happen to be Uh, Roman citizens. It was a very, very rare and important gift. There were only three ways that you could become a Roman citizen. You had to be born the son of a Roman who chose to pass on to you the right of sonship. You you didn't have to make your son a a Roman citizen if you didn't like him. So it was really something that you had to be given that by a father who, who liked you enough to let you become his Roman citizen son. The second way you could do it is if you served 25 to 26 years in the Roman military. 25 to 26 years, a lifetime in the Roman military. When you think that the average life expectancy was about 50, the chances are that you'd ever reach citizenship weren't that small, especially as violent and active the Roman military was in conflicts and wars around the empire. So it wasn't something that people got to easily. And then there was finally, it could be specially granted to you by the emperor. For some reason, the emperor would say, I want to honor you and make you a citizen of Rome. Uh, like a guy later on in Acts we read about, his name Claudius Lysias. He's a, really essentially a, a, a tribune or a, a Roman general, if you will. He's not 
automatically a Roman citizen. In fact, he says to Paul when he discovers that Paul is a citizen, he says, how did you get this? I obtained this freedom at a great price. We're not told what that great price was, although historians say there seems to be an indication that Emperor Claudius, who was the emperor at this particular time, was from time to time willing to sell citizenships for the right price. And it was a huge price, a small or large fortune, we don't know. There's just not a lot of historical evidence on it. But Paul responds to him and saying, but I was free born. Now you have to understand, being a free born citizen raised you to a much higher status in society. And as such, you had liberties that were available, particularly the, the advantages were, number one, politically, you had a right to vote. And you had a right to hold public office. So basically, if Paul wanted to run for some office in, in the Roman system, he could have done that. But secondly, it affected you financially, and this was really the big concern. You were able to make a contract. If you weren't a Roman, you couldn't make a contract. You couldn't make a contract or deal with anybody. You had just trust the other person would treat you fairly. You were able to own property if you were a Roman citizen. You were able to have a lawful marriage producing lawful children who become lawful heirs. You were able to become the, what's referred to as the paterfamilias, literally the head of your family, that being the head of the family was a legal position that all the people in your household were required by law to submit to your authority and to do what you say. Oh, what good times those were. But here's the one most people liked. You also had the right not to pay many taxes. In fact, you could ignore all local taxation. So there was a huge financial advantage to being a Roman citizen. But lastly, and, and that's most important, the only part of this right that we see Paul exercising is you had the right to sue somebody in court if you felt that you were wronged. Keep in mind, if you were a Jew and you felt like you'd been cheated, there was no place to go. There was no Roman authority who wanted to hear your case. He wasn't interested in your problems because you're not an important person. But you could sue in court. You could defend yourself in court. You know, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, we realize that he's brought before the Sanhedrin and turned over to the Romans and then condemned to die. There was no due process, but that was not unusual. That's the way their world worked. But if Jesus had been a Roman citizen, which he was not, then he could have demanded a legal trial before a legally appointed judge. And if he was found guilty, he would have the right to appeal to, that, to a higher court all the way to the emperor himself. And we see this later on in Paul's life, that he is sent to Rome because he appeals to Caesar when they want to condemn him. And you know what? He sat there for two years in Rome waiting, not in prison, because you could not imprison a Roman citizen. A Roman citizen could not be tortured, he could not be beaten, he could not be executed. He could not be executed. No death penalty for a Roman citizen unless it was a case of treason. But the point is that he lived in his own house. As he's in prison, he's given freedom to receive friends. And finally, he after two years of waiting, he gets his turn to literally walk into the presence of the emperor, Caesar Nero at the time, unfortunately, to stand before him and make his case and defend his life. Well, as we know, Nero condemned him of treason, uh, and basically blaming he and the Christians for the burning of Rome. But the bottom line was, this was the right and the privilege that came to somebody who was a Roman citizen that did not extend to anybody else. But that's not even where it ends. You see, in the case of citizenship, it can get a little bit confusing because you don't get one citizenship to Rome and forget about the other ones. In Paul's case, he had a quadruple citizenship. That means four for you who are from Britsville. A quadruple citizenship. <laughs> I know it's a cheap shot, but I, I, I'm... I'm I'm digging for a laugh. I, you know, I'll throw anybody over the, under the bus for that. Anyway, but basically, first and foremost, he was a Jewish citizen subject to Jewish law. 
In fact, Paul says that in, when he gives his testimony in, in chapter 21, verse 39, he says, I am a Jew. In other words, I, it's, I'm legally recognized as a Jew. I'm legally accountable as Jew. Fortunately, Judaism was a legal religion in Rome, in the Roman Empire. Christianity was safe as long as it was seen as part of Judaism, a sect of Judaism. But when the split came between the two, then suddenly Christians became members of an illegal religion and suffered persecution for about the next 200 years from Roman authorities. There was no freedom of religion. And when people think about Emperor Constantine, when 313, he gives the Edict of Milan, and people say, well, then he you know, made Christianity the official religion of Rome. All of that information is absolutely incorrect. What he did was, it was an issue of religious freedom the first that ever had been issued in the world where somebody said, you can worship however you please to worship. And that gave Christians the right to worship. Secondly, he was a citizen of the city of Tarsus in Cilicia, which was a Greek city, if you will. Today it's in modern Turkey, but that area was all occupied by Greek-speaking people. And he goes on to say, it was a citizen, I was a citizen of no mean city. In other words, Tarsus was considered to be one of the premier cities of the Roman world, economically, socially, intellectually. It was a place of real influence and real importance. So to say you were of Tarsus was, again, something that recommended you to other people. But thirdly, as we said, he was a natural-born citizen of Rome, where he says, I was born a citizen. And then there was a fourth citizenship, the one that he counted to be the most important of all. He says, I have my citizenship in heaven. So that Paul was required by Roman law to keep the laws of Rome and Tarsus and of Judea. But he also kept the laws of heaven based upon his conscience towards God. And it was his conscience towards God that trumped everything else. Well, it's fascinating to see how Paul moved between these four legal identities, if you will. Uh, he clearly understood his responsibilities to all four realms and all four governing authorities. That that's why he writes repeatedly in his letters. He says in Titus 3.1, submit to the government and its officers and be obedient and always ready to do what is good. In 1 Peter 2, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. To Timothy, he writes, he says, I urge you, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may live peaceably, peacefully and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. And then, of course, in Romans 13, 7, he says, render to all what is due to them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due. In fact, in this whole idea of submitting to authority, he even includes the church, where he says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority, for they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. But maybe of all the commands, the one that's most significant and most I think, present to our current moment is when he says in the beginning of Romans 13, he says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Now, based primarily upon that passage, some people have concluded that this means that a Christian must submit themselves to every action, every edict that an authority passes down, that we in a sense should surrender all legal rights when the authority mandates it. In fact, one well-known Christian pastor 
literally taught years ago, uh, I thought it was interesting because when the authorities told him to close his church, he refused to do so. But prior to that, he must have had a revision of his theology because he told the governor of California, I'm not doing it. But the thing that he said was, well, it doesn't matter whoever the authority is, even if it's Hitler, we should submit to the governing authority. It's interesting how uh, it's only as we are confronted with acting upon what we believe that we begin to kind of work through the nuances of meaning and come to conclusions that are actually more logical, realistic, sensible, and frankly, biblical. Because if that's your interpretation of what Paul was saying, then you don't understand Paul. What we do is we look at not only what he writes in his letter, but we look at how he lived out what he wrote in the book of Acts and in his interaction with the world. Because we never see Paul doing that. In fact, five different times we find Paul exercising his legal authority. He says in Phil when he was in Philippi, he, he fully exercises his civil rights under Roman law because they had been abused and violated by those who were in authority. And what is Paul beginning to tell us right here? What is the ultimate authority under Roman law? It is not the man who holds the office, but it's the legal foundations upon which that office rests. And this is a critically important distinction. That people who have positions of authority but abuse that authority are no longer have the right to command us to submit to them when what they're asking us to do violates not only the laws of the land, but even more importantly, the laws of God. Because these authorities are not standing on their own authority, they were standing on Roman law. When Paul is arrested in the temple and about to be flogged, again, he exercised his rights as a Roman citizen Back in chapter 22, when, uh, when the uh, Claudius Lysias, this tribune, this basically Roman general, a commander of a thousand soldiers, uh, has him taken and drug out of the temple and then says, let's beat him to find out what he did. A, a common form of, of uh, getting a confession in that time was to beat somebody till they became agreeable to whatever you wanted them to be guilty of. And as he's being drug away and they're getting ready to beat him, it says, as they stretched him out to be flogged. What that means is they tied his arms around a pole, tied his legs so he can't escape, and they're getting ready to thrash him with a cat of nine tails, ripping his back open. And Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Now, I find that fascinating. Uh, I just wonder if Paul just loved the timing of it all. <laughs> but I guarantee you what happened. At that very moment, this guy dropped the whip and he said, go get the general. <laughs> because what does he know? He knows that what he's about to afflict upon this man as a Roman citizen, he will be subject to if it's reported. And that's interesting at that moment because Paul now is released because he knew what his rights were as a Roman citizen. When he appears before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, he again stands on his legal rights as a, city of a citizen of Judaism. In fact, he's brought before the Sanhedrin and in chapter 22, verses two and three, it says that he responded to the high priest Paul said to him, you sit there to judge me according to the law. In other words, where is the authority, the priest or the law? The authority is in the hands of the law, not the priest. It's the priest's job to understand and to interpret the law. And if he doesn't, then he is violating his authority. And Paul said, you judge me according to law, yet you yourselves violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Again, Paul stands on the authority of Scripture, not the office of the high priest. Because those who hold offices have authority, but it is a delegated authority. It's not something that they possess. It's something that's entrusted to them to hold carefully. And so when it became clear that he would not get a fair hearing before the Jews, 
Paul asserted his Roman rights once again. And he says in chapter 25, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself very well know. And finally, when it becomes clear that he's not going to get justice from the Roman governor either, he again asserts his rights as a Roman citizen. He says, if, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And so it is the book of Acts ends with Paul being transported to Rome and being received and living in his own private residence as he awaits his, uh, uh, his uh, trial before uh, the emperor of Rome. Now, today many Christians have become very silent and compliant when a government official misuses or abuses or exceeds their authority and in doing so violates the greater authority of the Constitution. And there's a belief amongst many Christians that if we're going to be a good witness, what we're going to do is just sit back quietly and not say anything. We just need to be quiet and be loving and just let it go as they want it to go. What they, we find that in a situation where uh, we are told when and where and how we can worship, despite the clearly God-given things that are written within our own constitution, that we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of assembly, we have freedom to worship, and that the government shall make no laws or restrictions according to any of that. When we begin to realize that this was not just simply a short-term measure, but as we're finding that even now, Governor Newsom of California says, well, I told you I was going to lift the lockdown on June 15th, but I've changed my mind. And I'm going to extend it indefinitely. Well, he ought to because he's in serious trouble. But when we are forced to subsidize evil things like abortion, when we're called upon to endorse sexual immorality of every kind, no matter how extreme the perversion, and when we are told that we must stay quiet, we must follow their make-believe science, that we should comply, not criticize, not resist, I find myself puzzled, really. I'm, I find myself puzzled because I, I just wonder how long will Christians just go along without questioning or, or speaking up. You see, not only are many Christians silent as their rights as citizens of the United States are trampled, but they actually, many of them don't even vote. And even worse, there are some Christians who vote for the very people who are pushing the most evil and perverse and divisive laws and activities that one can imagine. People who are pushing anarchy, sexual perversion, and abortion. And if God doesn't judge America for abortion alone, <clears throat> I, I will be stunned. My question really is, why are so many Christians afraid to call things that the Bible clearly calls sin, identifies as being wickedness, and says that they're evil, as well as saying that those who promote these things are themselves wicked and evil? When the psalmist says in Psalm 5, you hate all workers of iniquity. When he says in Luke 13, 27, this is Jesus, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. What is a worker of iniquity? It's somebody who has made it their life's purpose and decisions to promote things that are diametrically opposed to the will of God, that they're, by biblical definition, evil, wicked things, and they promote them because they call evil good and they call good things evil. And yet somehow we're being told that as Christians we should 
just kind of sit by and say, the Lord bless you. As you stick a set vacuum hose inside of a woman's belly and rip her unborn child to pieces and then discard it as medical waste or medical tissue to be used on experimentation. It's, you know, we all would have said, what are you doing when under King of Manasseh, they were taking their newborn infants and offering on burning altars to Molech. We say, how, how, how violent, how wicked, how evil that is, how abominable that is. And yet when we do it in our own time, in a much larger degree, in numbers far beyond even grasping with our mind, we sit back and say, well, you know, it's taking place within a medically safe environment and uh, it's a woman's right to choose. Some of the most palpable nonsense that's ever been expressed by anyone, especially our own courts. What I think has happened is we've misread Romans 13, especially verse two, where it says that he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. The key words here, I think really importantly, the key words here are the words rebel and authority. See, the word rebel that's used here is really very strong and assertive in the language. Antitasso, it, it means to rage in battle against, to be hostile towards, or to become literally a hostile in conflict with a government authority, to set yourself up against it in the most strong and antagonistic and assertive way. In other words, it's really the idea that you become violently disposed toward the system. Who would fit under this category? Well, I would begin by saying groups like Antifa, that's what he's talking about, rebelling against the authority, trying to overthrow the system by violence. The object of this rebellion is not, again, the person who is in authority, but the very basis of the authority itself. They just don't hate the law of God, they hate God. And they want God to be removed from every corner of society so that they can become Godless. This is the one that he's contemned. Some simple logic tells us that God never calls us to submit to anything or anyone that violates God's authority. Government leaders, again, they're delegated authorities by God. But what is their job? He says it very clearly. To punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. But when the authorities do just the opposite... When the authorities set out to punish people who do right and they commend those who do wrong, then they are the ones who are rebelling against what God has instituted and will bring judgment on themselves. In short, we are not to submit to those who abuse that authority, who disobey that law, the law that they are tasked to actually uphold and enforce. us. Because what Paul said in Ephesians 5, 11, he said, don't partake in evil, but expose the evil. Expose the evil. You know, it's, uh, Scripture's filled with examples of Godly people, righteous people who resisted unrighteous and evil rulers. I mean, the Bible wouldn't have much of a story if it wasn't men and women of faith who were going against resisting and rebuking evildoers. Moses resisted and rebuked Pharaoh. Pharaoh had never had anybody his entire life walk into his palace and say, let my people go or God's gonna whack-a-mole you. Can you imagine that? You should see the terror. We read of the terror that Moses had that I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to, I mean, <laughs> he's going to cut my head off so fast I'll still be whistling as it falls to the ground. We, we, we miss this, right? What, what he was doing, he was standing against the authority 
who was oppressing the people of God and saying, in the name of the Lord God of heaven, let my people go. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel rebuked and resisted the kings and the priests of Judah and Israel. Isaiah, as a consequence, was arrested by King Manasseh and sawn in half with a sword or with a saw because he rebuked them and he didn't want to hear. You read the prophets, it's full of the kings becoming angry because they're being reproved for their wicked ways. Wicked ways that God says, if you don't repent, I'm going to bring judgment upon the entire nation. We don't see them being silent. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to obey the command of King Nebuchadnezzar. That Daniel refused to obey the command of Darius when he was told not to pray. And he was being told basically by Darius how he should worship God And instead, he said, I'll do the same thing I've done every day of my life. And every morning, he got up three times a day. And he went out on the parapet where he could be seen by everybody in the city. And he began to pray and worship the God of Israel in defiance of the king's rule. What about Mordecai, who was commanded by Haman to bow down to him? And he refused to do it because he would only bow down to God. But let's get New Testament for a minute here. Let's talk about John the Baptist. You know, Mark 14, 3, it's interesting. It says, now Herod, that is Herod Antipas, the governor of Galilee, had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, so he basically was living in an adulterous relationship with Herodias. He arrested him because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. In other words, the law of scriptures was the law of Israel. You are in violation of the law by cohabitating with a woman. You are committing adultery. I know, how parochial can you get? Because we've come in a time where the church kind of winks at adultery. Doesn't take it very seriously. And yet here's John the Baptist confronting the king and saying, you're in sin. You're breaking the law of God. So he gets arrested for it. In fact, Jesus, when he was twice went in and cleansed the temple and drove it out and said, you've turned my house into a house of thieves. Who is he speaking to? The Sanhedrin, the governing body, the the government of the nation of Judah? or Judea, he said, you're thieves and you're robbing the people. You've corrupted the house of God. In Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites, blind guys, snakes, a brood of vipers. And even Herod Antipas, he says, that fox, which was a very derogatory term in, 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 the, uh, in first century Judaism. It means somebody who is insignificant, pretentious, and base. It's kind of a comparison between a lion and a fox. A lion who struts confidently and seems to be intimidated by nothing, and a fox just wiggles and sneaks around. And yet Herod wanted to see himself as being a lion. He says, oh, the guy's nothing but a fox. He's an empty suit. I hope Jesus repented of that. You think? Or we have the apostles who in chapter five, when they're brought before the same Sanhedrin and they're being questioned by the high priest and it says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name to which they responded. And he went on to say, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You think? Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men And after they had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And so from that point on, they no longer taught the gospel. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, I misread. Yet, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus the Christ. The authorities are commanding them 
to do something and they're choosing to willfully disregard and disobey that command because the command was illegal. Tragically, we have examples <laughs> from modern history of those who misunderstood or misapplied Roman Norman 13 and stayed silent in the face of the worst kinds of iniquities. I'm talking about the church in Nazi Germany. Something that we miss, and I think was a puzzlement to many people, caused a lot of people, especially like Hannah Arendt, the historian, to study the, the circumstance, the cultural dynamics of that time to understand how could a country, which at the time was considered to be one of the most intellectually advanced, most scientifically advanced, most manufacturing powerful and wealthy. And I mean, they were looked up at the world and admired for how they had come out of the Great Depression. And Hitler was featured as a man of the year on Time magazine. Notable leading Americans were admirers of him. But as one historian noted, he said, Hitler, the democratically elected ruler of Germany, commanded both Catholic and Protestant Christian leaders to preach unconditional obligation or subjection to Hitler under the pretense of Roman 13. When Hitler's aim was to disarm German citizenry, take away their guns, Christian leadership obediently mollified their congregations with Roman 13. When Hitler's aim was to abduct dissidents in the dark without due process of law, the churches cited Roman 13. And when they could smell the burning flesh of their neighbors coming from the oven, rendering the air unbreathable, they cited Roman 13. One pastor said, here's how they had come to learn to read Romans 13. Let every person be subject to Hitler. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists Hitler resists what God has appointed. It was Martin Niemöller who, in his confessional poem after the war, summarized the compliance and its impact. He said, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I am not a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. Tragically or ironically, or maybe both, I can't decide. So many Christians regularly say, well, we should not be involved in politics. When I hear that, I'm reminded of probably my favorite and one of the greatest movies ever made called Princess Bride. <laughs> Vincenny, the uh, Sicilian kidnapper, is constantly referring to things as being inconceivable inconceivable. He says it over and over and over again. I love that, that when they're at the top of the cliff and, and Wesley is climbing the rope and he's going, inconceivable, you know. And I love the Spaniard says, you keep on saying that. I don't think you know what that word means. <laughs> and I would say that to many of you who say, well, we shouldn't be involved in politics. Your problem is you don't know what the word means. Aristotle's the one who coined it. <laughs> And what he said politics is the science of good sense applied to public affairs. There's certainly nothing wrong with being political because it's rooted in the idea of people existing in community and having people who have wisdom and experience who can guide us to the best ends, who seek to build the good, to commend the good, and to punish those who are evildoers. You see, what the Bible condemns is not politics. What it condemns is partisanship. That's what's evil, partisanship. What is partisanship? It's prejudice. 
It's one-sidedness, it's discrimination, it's favoritism, unfair preferences, it's partiality, it's factionalism, it's injustice, and it is the worst iniquity. It's people who are seeking after power. They're not seeking after good. Those are what we see rampant in our culture today. At the level that I would simply say it might be even as a nation and in our leadership, we might be at a level that's, that's, you know, technically or psychologically, we call them sociopathic. Certainly narcissistic to such a degree that they feel they have delusions on grandeur on one hand and they have a lack of empathy for anybody else. You want to know what a narcissist is? That's a narcissist. Delusion of grandeur, thinking I'm better than I am, and at the same time I feel no empathy for anybody else because everything was created to serve me, myself, and I. I call that the evil trinity. What our nation desperately needs is Jesus. I don't find any Christian argues that. But we're living in an age we have to ask the question, well, which Jesus are we talking about? We don't need the woke, deconstructed, reinvented Jesus who has nothing to say on important moral issues, cultural issues, that he doesn't care about sex or sexuality or gender or morality. That's the Jesus that increasingly is being promoted. We're finding that even within our churches increasingly, Pastors are talking about Jesus with the little lambs in his arms. We're not talking about Jesus who made a whip of cords and drove the money changers out of the temple. They want to skip over that Jesus. We want to talk about the Paul who wrote the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Not the other one who spoke of the evildoers that would become workers of iniquity. See, America needs a Jesus who is real specific about things like mm, sin. The one who tells us what is sin, what it looks like, the form it comes in. The Jesus who calls people to repent for their sins and promises those who refuse to repent that they will end up in hell for eternity. A Jesus who demands to be taken literally, logically, authoritatively. Because I'll tell you what I found. If you don't take the Bible literally, you won't take it seriously. And in many of the churches, this is our problem. They hold the Bible, they read portions from it, but they don't take it seriously. When I was uh, in high school, my freshman year, I I took a typing class. We had these things called typewriters. Some of you may remember them. I I have one in my house. It's it's in my collection of old stuff. (laughs) It's really cool. It has the glass doors on the side. You can see here. Something that as a child I was fascinated by. But I learned how to use a keyboard, a typing skills. And do you remember what the phrase was that your typing teacher taught you to practice over and over and over again? You'd type it, you'd type it and retype it and retype it. And then you'd turn in your sheet and she would check to see how accurate you were in your typing. Maybe that's why I remember it. He, it was a quote from Patrick Henry who gave his life for this country. Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. You see, our founders had a concept that there was a very clear line between what was good and evil. They weren't always true to it like you aren't always true to it. But they weren't confused about it either. They knew that there were some things that were good and they knew that there were some things of evil and they spoke to that. They weren't afraid to confront it when it was evil, and it was bad. We have our own history that we need to be reflective on because according to the reading of many people today of Romans 13, that the American Revolution was wrong. Shouldn't we have submitted to King George? 
And yet, most people, because of their paucity of historical reference and context, don't understand that King George was mad as a hatter. I mean, that's not just an idea. The guy was insane. He was mentally ill. He's crazy as a loon. I'm not speaking pejorative of loons. I have nothing personally against them. And he was violating British law and oppressing the colonists by putting one tax after another after another, forcing them to take soldiers into their homes at their own expenses, imprisoning people, not giving them due process of law, shutting down anything that was contradictory. And the guy was basically an oppressor. And after numerous appeals to the king, to the parliament, they finally came to the point where they said, this man has violated, transgressed his God-given authority and we will no longer submit. And what was the fruit of it? You know what Jesus said? Judge a tree by its fruit. What was the fruit of it? The best nation that has ever existed on the face of the earth. As de Tocqueville said of England, America after he visited, he said America is strong because America is good. It was a nation who was not perfect by any measure, but they understood that there was a clear line between good and evil. And we're foolish if we deny the evil and pretend it didn't happen because it did but we're even more foolish if we pretend there was no good. And we began to paint everybody with the same brush because it fits a narrowly defined agenda that seeks to gain power and prosperity. Sir Edmund Burke put it so well when he said, that all the evil needs to succeed is for good men to do nothing. I'm not calling you to do anything uber dramatic. What I'm challenging you with is simply this. When people say things that are wrong, that you're not afraid to say, I disagree. When people say things that are untrue, you'll simply say, well, that's not actually true. And I know why you don't do that, because usually they flip out, you know, go postal all over you. No offense to the post office. <laughs> but have you found that package yet? Anyway. Well, I got that off my chest. <laughs> it's been on there for a long time. So those of you, if you're still listening to me, have been writing me those emails. Now you have my answer. Father God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to put aside the chaos and the confusion that we would be checked in our misreading and misapprehension of what the text says that I suspect that many who say it's wrong for us to care about these things are, are minimizing it and not really looking at it carefully because they've already formed an opinion that they think will be culturally acceptable. I pray, God, that we would not fall into that category, that we would be wise, that you'd give us wisdom, guide us by your hand, we pray in Jesus' name.